Hi guys, it's me, Ty Pool, and I'm back, and I have way more questions. Things like, what are animals saying to each other? Why is space so dark? What's the science behind bullying? This season, I'm willing to go where no 7th grader has ever gone before to find you the answers. Ty asks why. Rest your eyes and prepare your ears for all new episodes of Ty Asks Why. This is a CBC Podcast. Want a weekly roundup of the best CBC Radio programming? Subscribe to the CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Get a digest of the week's top stories. Read in-depth articles. Listen to interviews and documentaries. And get the lowdown on upcoming stories from CBC Radio 1 that you need to hear. To subscribe, go to cbc.ca slash radio and look for the subscribe button. The CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Be informed. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This is White Coat Black Art, the show about medicine from all sides of the gurney. Most Canadians die with a roof over their heads and relatives to grieve. Hard to have that when you're homeless. There's a remarkable group in downtown Toronto that provides palliative care and end-of-life care to people with no fixed address. Recently, we met with some of the members of the team when they gathered to grieve the death of one of their clients, just like a family. They call themselves a street family. Dr. Nahid Dasani calls to order a group of women and men. This is a special rite of passage that we've been privileged to observe, called a healing circle. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone and welcome you all to a healing circle for our, our comrade. I'd like to start by lighting the flame to remember her spirit and uh, observe a minute of silence. The friend and comrade Nahid referred to was a woman we aren't naming to protect her privacy and because she isn't here to give us her permission. So we're calling her Ruth. A woman in her 50s with end-stage breast cancer who arrived from Saskatchewan with a dire prognosis, no family, and no place to live. I thought it might make sense to start with some introductions, so everyone, I know many people do... Nahid is a doctor with palliative education and care for the homeless, or PEACH. It's a team that treats pain and other symptoms in homeless people at the end of life. The team meets clients in shelters and even has a mobile unit to reach people in need right on the streets. Nahid first met Ruth soon after she arrived in Toronto when she was living at a large shelter in the downtown core. As her condition worsened, she got to spend her final days living here at Good Shepherd Nonprofit Homes in a room reserved for palliative clients of Peach. The healing circle took place in the basement at Good Shepherd. Nahid and seven others who played an important role in helping the woman die comfortably and not alone. I'm Mike. I'm the superhero. There was Mike Finley, a superintendent at Good Shepherd. We really miss her. <laughs> uh, my name is Sasha. I am the nurse. Sasha Hill, a nurse coordinator for Peach. Um, I met uh, her pretty much on one of my very first days here and uh, absolutely loved her to bits. <laughs> and she was just somebody that you just were kind of naturally attracted to. She had a great personality. Um, I'm Marion. I'm the palliative home visiting nurse. Marion Harris, who was the woman's palliative care nurse. It always smelled really nice in her apartment when <laughs> the chemo wasn't making her sick. <laughs> she was always cooking something. 
I'm Lazar, I'm the program manager. Lazar Kakasari, a program manager. I'm glad we were we were there to sort of support her through the journey, and uh, she's made a strong impact in me personally. Hmm. I miss her dearly. Bianca Yao, a support worker. I'm Bianca. I'm the support worker um, working with her. Her uh, passion for life really um, gives me a lot of uh, inspiration. Sadia Uruj, a trustee. Uh, my name is Sadia. Yeah, definitely do miss her presence around here. I'm Tanya. And I'm Tanya Doucette, another program manager at Good Shepherd who worked closely with Ruth. When she showed up, I just her presence, I absolutely knew we had uh, a sweet little angel amongst us because of her wonderful tenacity and just her uh, English was her second language. So there was a limited uh, communication capacity from a language perspective, but her energy just spoke volume. So it was really wonderful to have her here. And I'm Nahid Desani. I'm a palliative care doctor with Inner City Health Associates Peach Program and the medical director of Journey Home Hospice. I met her when she was in a large women's shelter, which I'm sure we'll get into, and was her palliative care doctor as she transitioned uh, to housing with you guys here at the Good Shepherd and until her end of life. The purpose of healing circles is to allow people to share in the experience together as a group. Nahid Desani was there both as a member of the group and as a guide. As you're about to find out, Ruth left quite the impression. As we, um, as we work through our healing circle today, we'll be navigating what we call the four R's. Um, we'll be remembering, we'll be reflecting, we'll hopefully be recovering, and together we'll plan to reinvest. Because as we walk out that door, as crazy as it sounds, we're gonna just have to do it all again. So, what do you remember about her? What do you remember about your ability to help her? Physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually. What was difficult about her death that you remember? What was beautiful about her death that you remember? Does anyone wanna start? Um, I just wanted to say she had such a strong will to live. Um, like, I didn't know her husband divorced her because she had cancer. Um, but she just always had such a beautiful smile on her face. And I remember telling one of my colleagues that the one thing we could learn from her is just how to have so much grace in such a difficult situation. Um, because that's, she like exhumed grace in everything that she did. Um, never heard her complain. There was once that um, it was summer and she uh, was sitting on her walker outside of the building just a little down the street and I was going to the post office and uh, I s stopped and I said, um, are you okay? You're just getting some sunshine? Because she's just sitting and smiling up at the sun. She said, oh no, I went grocery shopping and I'm walking back to the apartment and I just, I get tired, I need to take a break. So I said, well, like, give me the groceries and I'll walk with you and I'll take them back to your apartment. And she, like, vehemently refused. She just said, no, I just, I'm okay. I want to do it myself, but I just, I want to take a little break. So I said, okay. When I came back, I was looking for her, and I guess she had already gone back to her apartment. But she just had so much, like, quiet strength. Thank you. And she had a pretty good uh, sense of humor, too. <laughs> yeah. She, yeah. I remember the one time you yeah. were, she, she was making something in the kitchen, and Dr. Desani's like, oh, what are you making? Expecting, like, a really complex Chinese recipe. And she was like, Noodles. <laughs> Noodles. I just gave him a look like, have you ever seen this before? <laughs> it was so good. 
but so um, so resilient. Um, I remember this moment being in the cafeteria um, at women's residence, meeting her for, for the first time. I mean, like it was a, it was a new referral to the Peach program, and this 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 woman who is dealing with metastatic breast cancer um, is is asked to leave her home. And then has to, and she knows there's, she just feels there's better resources in Toronto. So she comes to Toronto on her own. And then she just shows up at a women's shelter and she's kind of just dealing with it. And like, I'm overwhelmed doing the, the consultation. It's like, like, she's not overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed. Like, just the resilience is just wild to me. Um, but, um, but just the way that she opened, you guys opened your hearts to her is what, what you have to realize is, um, you know, Clinically, in the community, the Peach team, we can only do so much. But when there's a family, when there's a housing provider, when there's an agency um, and a movement behind um, what you guys do, it can do beautiful things for people. Um, and I think what, you're, what you saw, like Blossom, that, that, those smiles, that, that energy, um, that was human connection. It wasn't morphine, and it wasn't anti-nauseants, and it wasn't chemotherapy, it was, it was love. Yeah, if she let you in, you were in there. What kind of suffering do you guys think she experienced? I know when she was diagnosed and she came and she told me that she didn't have long to live and she started crying. That was, uh, well, it's not that easy. Like, <laughs> I didn't know what to say or anything, so. And because there was such a communication gap with language that... All I could do is just, you know, put my hands on her shoulder and just show her how sorry I felt for her. And hmm. Yeah. Sitting there, like, I feel uh, helpless, like, nothing I can help her. And um, I feel <laughs> the, the powerless of myself. She always had that positivity, okay, no, there is some way, some way... Somewhere somebody has a treatment for her, a cure for her, and uh, don't give up. However difficult life is, don't give up. And be a source of inspiration for others. Not always share your sad story with others and make others drain out. There's positivity. So that, that's what I still remember in her and never give up. She always said, when I feel better, I would like to go to the center to be a volunteer. Yeah. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> serving, serving the food for people. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, we're sharing with you a healing circle that includes a palliative care doctor, nurses, and other people who helped ease the final days of a homeless woman with end-stage breast cancer whom we've called Ruth. A unique relationship between a homeless woman and her street family. Their vivid descriptions of her smile, her sense of humor, and her courage made me feel as if I'd met her. So... We've spent the last few minutes remembering her. Now, Dr. Nahid Dosani, the palliative care doctor and leader of the group, asked how the woman's death affected them. Physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually. What was the suffering that you experienced? I really do wish that I could have been with her in the end. Um, and I hope I was somewhere anyway. 
and and before she passed, one of my things was because she didn't she didn't like our Western medicine. So it, sometimes it was frustrating because we, like, we would know that if she could take some medicine, she would feel better. But she was very resistant to taking her medications that would have helped her feel a little better physically. Um, and it was an ongoing thing. Marion, can I ask when you when you don't have the opportunity to do more, like you said, with her, what does that do to you? Uh, but, How does that make you feel? Well, you feel helpless, and you feel like I feel like I'm not doing as much as I can for her. But at the same time, I realize that I'm doing as much as she will l let me do. Mm -hmm. um, and as long as I'm there, I'm, I'm at that place, then it's it's okay. Yeah. I mean, like she had a lot of nausea from the chemo, and she just would not take that mm -hmm. anti-nausea medication. She would just suffer through it, no matter what. And and I have to respect that that's a decision that she's making. Mm -hmm. um, so that's hard to watch, but you, you do because you're being respectful of what she wants and needs. And mm -hmm. Yeah. How else did her death affect you, Tanya? I'm a very sensitive person, and I live from the neck down. And so I feel she did as well. So um, I want to say my suffering, sadness, and miss. Um, I adored her. Uh, I would just sometimes see her in the hallway, and she would just, we'd put our arms around each other and not say a word and look out the window. And... Um, she had this beautiful spirit and a beautiful soul and that's what you encountered when you're in her company and so for me she was a teacher and she just taught me tenacity and determination she was determined like from the moment we went to women like the shelter to she had no health card she had and we just she just without speaking much you knew that she knew you were going to get that for her because there was just something about her that uh, inspired us all to work really hard, but because we wanted to. So I just miss her a lot. <laughs> yeah, like they, they say there's this like, the palliative care is like this science and this art, right? She was, she was a teacher of the, of the art, like how um, you can go in and see a client anywhere on the street, in a home, in supportive housing. You can prescribe the pain medicine, the laxative, the anti-nauseant, leave their unit and you would have felt like you did absolutely nothing <laughs> because that's not the point. Yeah, right so. to address the overall total suffering and yeah she in one way was vulnerable because she was dealing with a life-limiting disease but she was also on the street right like she was on the street by herself mm -hmm. and you start to think about like my suffering is like the suffering that she experienced amidst the suffering that we see in the streets like how many more people need to be in our streets for us to understand that housing is a human right. Like how, how many more people need to have an early death? Uh, life expectancies are 34 to 47 years old. For us to realize that we need healthier policies for people. The suffering for me is like, what is the threshold for us to care as a society? A woman is dealing with metastatic breast cancer by herself in a shelter, doesn't have health insurance and has no one to help her. Like that's really where this started. Like that's the bottom line. Like really, we can do better.
What Nahid just talked about is known as moral distress. It's defined as the stress that health professionals experience when rules or institutional constraints make it difficult to do the right thing. That's what he and the other members of the circle had felt for Ruth. The discussion then turned to the group itself. Marion Harris, the palliative care nurse, talked about what motivates the members of the healing circle. I don't think we don't do this job to get something out of it. I mean, we do. And, it, and it's nice when we do, like how appreciative she was of everything that we did. You know, and the same token, like if I have a client from the streets who doesn't want to have anything to do with me, that's okay too. I just let him know that I'm here. You know, we saw a fellow this morning who wanted us just to go away. And so we did. And I, for me personally, I will just keep going and keep going and keep going. And most of them eventually will let me in, you know, some more than others, but I can usually soften them up a little. It's a, it's, a, it's a lifetime of not trusting anyone. So if you're there and, you, you know, they, they get to understand and somewhere in their heart believe that you aren't going to desert them and you are going to be there for them. So we've remembered her and we've reflected on our experiences with her. As we transition, I'd ask us all to think about how we want to recover because each and every time we deal with a case like this, or perhaps an easy, maybe a case where you had an easier time, all the way to maybe something that was traumatic for you and everything in between, there's always that process where you have to go out or we're expected to go out and do it again. What do you plan to do to recover from her passing? What do you do to take care of yourself? For me, people always say don't sweat the small stuff, but she didn't sweat the big stuff. That's something that I learned from her, to, to not sweat the big stuff, because I think sometimes that's worse, and it's the stuff that'll bring you down. And it, Being riddled with cancer didn't bring her down. I, I don't know where she got the strength from, but, but she really had it. My uh, process is I talk to her a lot still. I just talk to her. And even before I came today, I said, give me the words to say. Give me, because <laughs> she was so wise. And so uh, I'm learning so much more because I'm such a talker. <laughs> that communication is not verbal. It is, I know we all know nonverbal communication, but she was uh, uh, so wonderful in, in letting me know how she felt. And so I know uh, presence having just a few little moments with someone, you can be with that person. And so I, I'm taking that with me. It's not for nothing when you stand with someone just for a couple of minutes and say, good morning, yeah. or you say, how are you feeling today? It really matters. And, and that's dignity and, and love and respect. And so she taught me that little moments really uh, matter. So I'm gonna be very present in those, continue to do that, because that's what she gave you when you were with her, so yeah. I'm trying to get you guys to talk so I don't cry. <laughs> and ditto to what everybody has said. Um, but uh, I'm going to, and I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but I think it's really hard. Uh, it's getting harder to 
to recover every time we do this. Like, um, we are seeing, we are being asked to see more people, which I appreciate people are getting the care, but there are more people who are needing this care. They're being discharged to the street with more medical illness and complexity. Mm -hmm. The fastest growing subset of the homeless population is the elderly. Um, mm -hmm. They're frail. They're being discharged with less resources. And it's just like, how can you take care of yourself when the streets are being flooded with people who need this kind of support? And we're doing more healing circles than we've ever done, which in one way is great because this is what we're here to do to support each other. But like, what does that say about the society that we live in? And it's not fair, right? And I don't, I'm not certain that we're being given the tools to heal so we can do this more or the, or the foundational resources and support to do this kind of work. Um, but what I will take from the one-on-one -on -one interactions with her um, was, uh, was the, the reminder that you, you, you never really know the battle that someone's dealing with. And I think that's something that I'll take away from to, to hone my art in future approaches um, uh, with, with other people um, in this situation. The healing circle in the basement at Good Shepherd was coming to an end. As Ruth's street family, they cared for her as deeply as any family. I wanted to ask about that. One last thing I wanted to I wanted to ask. It strikes me that in your line of work, you could be in mourning a lot. How do you stand that? I, I can speak to that, I guess. We have uh, quite a few tenants that have passed. And uh, sometimes we find them in their homes and they've been dead a day or two or three. Uh, we've, most of us here have found someone deceased. Um, sometimes uh, they're in palliative care. And so what gives me comfort uh, is that everyone in our program, whether they've rejected us a thousand times, whether they've uh, not wanted to see us, but we kept showing up, they died with dignity. And in their final moments, they knew they were cared for. And that's what really matters to me because dying is, well, the most important, that's the final moment of our lives. And so whether they're physically alone, we have no control over that. Um, but we have had several tenants that have been very difficult to house and we've worked really hard for that and they've passed. And I'm always so grateful that they knew no matter how much their trauma showed up, we never went away. And they knew on their final days that they were cared for. Yeah. And you knew that they knew that they were cared for. That must be really important to you. Absolutely. It's to be in those moments every time of respect and dignity because you never know when it's going to be your last encounter with someone. And then you, you hear they're not around and you get a call from another tenant that says, we haven't seen this person. And so you go with this feeling in the pit of your gut that I might have to find you deceased in your unit. But I know up until the very end that uh, we gave the energy and the care that, that they knew we, we were not going anywhere. And so... Sometimes when I'm thinking about them, like I don't feel they, they are physically gone, but in my heart, they are always in my mind. So um, I feel like I'm with them and they are with me um, when the moment they come to me. So, um, yeah. Every year during the All Souls Day, we arrange service. So we read out all the names of the clients who have passed away and we light candles for them. So they are with us. Every year we remember them. 
to to be honest um it's getting harder and harder to keep doing what we're doing. Um, we have an opioid epidemic. Hundreds of people are dying in our streets. We have a homeless memorial that happens every month where names are read out. Some of them, we don't even know their names that are read out. Life expectancies are 34 to 47 years old. We have you know, over 5,000 people in our streets. We have a housing crisis. How, like, how is it? that we how how is it possible that we we are being asked to just do it again and again and again but what keeps me motivated um ditto to what everyone else said but what keeps me motivated is we're beginning to unravel what um what it means uh what a human life is really worth through the death experience and death is a social justice issue and as we begin to unravel that more and more we're beginning to ask ourselves questions about what kind of society we want to live in and they say the best way to judge a society is by how we treat our most vulnerable citizens. And so we need to get that right. Um, and I think we're starting to, and that keeps keeps me going at least. But what you're also saying is that the risk of burnout is, is real. The burnout is real. Compassion fatigue is real. Where are the services and support to help people psychosocially so they can go out and do their jobs and protect their own hearts and minds and souls? It's a very dangerous fine line and this is a very giving community and they're giving of themselves constantly. And I worry about that burnout constantly. I'd like to take a moment um, to, uh, to have some silence to reflect on her memory as we close out yet another healing circle for an individual we will always remember. Thank you everyone. Tanya Doucette, a member of the Healing Circle, says she's glad just knowing that Ruth did not die on the street. I'm in awe of the street family that cared for her and loved her and won't forget her. That's our show for this week. To let us know what you thought of the program, email us at whitecoat at cbc.ca or post to our blog at cbc.ca slash whitecoat. I'm on Twitter at NightShiftMD, and the show is at CBC White Coat. We're also on Facebook. And if you're looking for the latest in health news and analysis, subscribe to Second Opinion at subscriptions.cbc.ca. White Coat Black Art was produced this week by Jeff Goods with help from senior producer Donna Dingwall, Amina Zoffer, Sajada Berry, and digital producer Ruby Buiza. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.